Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Full Service Radio. My name is Danielle Vogel, and you're listening to Everyday Enviro on Full Service Radio, a show about the little things you can do to minimize your personal carbon footprint. This show is all about empowering you to take control of the pace of environmental progress you're making just by being a little bit more mindful about the way you eat, drink, shop, and think. This isn't hard stuff, but we'll show you just how easy it can be when you know exactly which small things really do matter. So... Everyone knows that grocery is a cutthroat, no-margin industry, and that's certainly true. But those of us who are working to advance the good food movement by running small, independent specialty grocery stores are few and far between. So we got to stick together, collaborate, and help each other out. That's exactly what today's show is all about. My guest and I are two women working in a very tough business, trying to do some good in the world, and we'll be talking about what we've learned along the way and what we're seeing coming down the pike in the world of small batch locally made food. I'm joined by local grocer extraordinaire, Emily Friedberg, co-founder of Columbia Heights neighborhood Gem Each Peach Market. Emily, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really excited to chat with you today. So let's start from the beginning. You grew up in New York City, but your family has a farm out in the Catskills. How did you become interested in the local good food movement? Well, that's a really good question. I, um, I actually had a full career before starting a grocery store in international development, which is how I wound up in Washington, D.C., but I have always come from a, a real foodie family. Um, we always, my mom is a huge cook. We did lots of entertaining at home, and um, even though I grew up in New York City, um, I had access to you know, really on-farm produce. The area that my parents live in is um, very much a a dairy belt. So there's lots of dairy farms and cheesemakers and it's starting to really take off in terms of organic production up there. Um, So that was very inspiring. And then also um, growing up in New York, I think I had a lot of access and experience with the neighborhood grocery. Like I had grew up, there was a corner store that you would go to to get your milk and your eggs uh, and and that was just part of growing up in New York and that doesn't didn't exist here in DC um, at the time so I think it was the kind of the combination of those two things that led me to be interested in starting a, a grocery store um, and I just love to shop at grocery stores <laughs> <It's> fun, <right? laughs> so I love food I love farmers markets and uh, my business partner and I uh, Jean Louise she has a, a culinary background she's a, a pastry chef by training and had spent a lot of time in Europe and so still again the idea of shopping locally you know for food that you're going to take home and eat and consume that night was really appealing to us um, so we really just created a store that we wanted to shop in ourselves. Yeah. So that is, it's gotta be the shorthand. I need to hear more about the origin story of each peach. So we went, we, we, we were at USAID and then all of a sudden we're like living the dream of, of owning a small <laughs> dependent grocery store. Like how did you guys meet? How did the store sure. get started? Where'd it come from? Yeah. So Jean Louise and I actually worked in international development together. So we worked for a company called Comonix International. Uh, which did USAID contracting. Um, We both worked uh, in East Africa, or she actually worked in West Africa, but in Africa, in agriculture, 
um, in private sector development there. And, it, you know, honestly, a lot of the issues facing small farmers in Africa is the same issues that are facing small farmers here, um, particularly when you get into um, small yield organic production. Um, but fast forward from that. So we met, we became friends. We, um, we both had a love of food. Um, she also comes from a foodie family. Um, we used to dream up these really elaborate business ideas that we were going to do with each other. Like we were going to, um, with another friend of ours, we were going to farm, start an inn with, you know, goats and on farm produce. And we were going to, you know, make up everything in the kitchen was going to come from the farm and she was going to run the goat farm and I was going to run the inn and our other friend was going to run the, <laughs> run the, awesome. the goats or the farm, I guess. And, um, you know, that was pretty grandiose. And we sort of actually did sit down at some point and say, can we actually make this work? And it turned out she didn't really want to play with goats all day. And my other <laughs> friend didn't want to run the farm. So we scratched that idea. Um, but then um, on our various uh, career paths, Jean Louise wound up going to culinary school in Paris. And at the same time, I went to business school. Um, and after business school, I came back here to DC and worked in consulting for a little bit longer, which um, I would say sucked my soul a little bit dry. <laughs> and um, ended up out in San Francisco doing a design fellowship with a company called IDEO, which is very famous for product design. Um, and was there working for their first iteration of a nonprofit arm of that company. And um, while I had a great time playing in design and traveling all over the world, what really inspired me out in San Francisco was the food scene out there. And I thought, you know, there's so many, you know, great restaurants. There's the corner store that I had been missing from New York. There's all this fresh produce. People are super neighborhood oriented in San Francisco. They pretty much don't leave their neighborhoods ever. And, um, and I just got really inspired there um, by the people that I met. And I, and I knew I was coming back to D.C. after my fellowship. And I thought, you know, D.C. is ready for something like this. Mm -hmm. you know? And what, what year was this? You this was um, 2011. Okay. Um, and I really thought D.C. was ready. There was the, the sort of restaurant scene was starting to take off. People were getting really interested in their neighborhoods and kind of putting down roots in different neighborhoods in the city. Um, and I met some folks out in San Francisco. I met Sam from, from Byright. Who this is, is Sam McGannum, muse of mine. Yeah, so he's, he's been a mentor, I think, to both yeah. of us. The, the best grocer in the country, as really. far as I'm concerned. I mean, and his, his place is, is pretty magical. And um, there was a few other folks out there that I reached out to. I also went to business school in Ann Arbor. So I had Zingerman's, which is another mentor business of ours, mm -hmm. I would say. Um, as a model and I just we just kind of put it together you know I think I at first threw it out to Jean Louise like hey we should we should open a bakery and she said no <laughs> I don't want to start at 3 a.m. no way <laughs> and I was like okay okay well I don't want to run a restaurant and I you know I don't think that that's where where my passion is um, and so we kind of came to this grocery idea um, knowing nothing about what we were doing. So, so for those listeners who haven't uh, shared in the Eat Preach experience yet, can you sort of give us a visual, walk us through mm -hmm. how big is the space, what can you find there, what, sure. what, what are you presenting to the world? So each peach is tiny. So our, um, our selling area is just under a thousand square feet. So it is truly New York style bodega situation. Um, we really pride ourselves in the amount of produce we sell. So the first thing that you're gonna see when you walk into each peach is a huge amount of produce. We really strive to have that be both local and organic if possible. Mm -hmm. um, we carry really high quality bread. We carry milk, also locally produced. 
Um, we have a very active deli where we make made-to-order sandwiches, and we have a full kitchen in the basement where we make lots and lots of prepared foods that go very quickly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and pretty much you can get, you can do all of your daily shopping at each peach market. We may not have every possible cereal you can possibly imagine. But you can find some great locally made granola. But you can get granola. Awesome. That's right. Um, and can you share a little bit about your sourcing methodology when you're mm -hmm. choosing these great products to put on your shelves? Uh, there's, there's real tight competition for square footage. Yes. So w what makes the cut and why? Yeah. So we we tell everyone our, our kind of guiding principles of, you know, why people come to each peach versus somewhere else is our, our sort of very, very strong commitment to high quality product and our levels of customer service. So we really go overboard on both of those levels. So the first and foremost is the product has to be really good quality, mm -hmm. no matter where it's from. Lead with delicious. Lead with the delicious. The rest shall follow. Exactly. Um, so it has to be good quality. We have to like it. So, you know, we, like you said, we have really high competition. And what the promise that we're making to our customers is that, you know, we have curated this store for them. And so everything in there has to sort of pass our taste test. And so it has to be really great. Um, when it comes to um, produce and things like that, we do have a pretty rigorous hierarchy of how we select our produce. We have some things that we want to always have in the store that are just basic shopping needs um, because that's what our customers demand. And then we have some products that we like to introduce that are not as known like, you know, sunchokes or um, kohlrabi or things like that, that people aren't as familiar with, especially in the summertime. But we like to bring those in and display them with recipe books and things like that. So, mm -hmm. um, so people can get introduced to them. But as far as our sourcing methodology, I mean, our first goal for produce is that it's local and organic. Mm -hmm. um, then if we can't get local, we go for organic. And if we can't get, if we really can't get either of those things, then we will occasionally carry some conventional produce. For convenience. For convenience and, but we're really, really strict about our transparency with our customers and labeling those things. So no one's thinking they're getting, you know, an organic avocado and they're not. Awesome. So speaking of produce, have you been able to visit any of the farms in our region? And is anyone doing anything particularly cool or innovative that really struck you? Yeah, I mean, so a few years ago, we had the, we buy a lot of produce from the Tuscarora Growers Cooperative out in Pennsylvania, um, and which is a group of about 50 small farmers that um, has been around for about 30 years. And they aggregate their produce, and they're very um, systematic with how they um, organize their farmers, which I thought was really amazing. Um, and their product is always super high quality. So we had an opportunity to go and visit um, their operation and visit a couple of their farmers. Um, and I just found it, um, I thought the thing that was most impressive about um, their operation was their growing schedule. So they actually kind of dictate to their farmers who should produce what, when, so that they have a consistent supply of, say, tomatoes. I mean, it can't go all year long, mm -hmm. but they can kind of stretch the season around here by saying, okay, you plant tomatoes for harvest in June, and yeah. you wait so that we can have them also at the end of August. So they're managing the supply chain. They're managing the supply chain. And they're doing it with farmers. A lot of their farmers, uh, farmers are Amish, and so they don't have um, email, and they don't have phones. And so to like get their information, they actually have to like drive to the farm and give them the information, or they, they have meeting points where the farmers will come to them at, for these weekly meetings. I thought that was kind of amazing. It is. So... I, I am a woman grocer. Emily is a woman grocer. Um, we buy much of our produce from Amish or Mennonite farmers. Mm -hmm. 
have you had any like odd experiences receiving that produce? Because I find they won't shake my hand. Yeah, no, they definitely no. <laughs> it's, had- it's been sort of a really interesting cultural education. Yeah, their produce is second to none, but uh, you know, sociologically, it's it's a very different. It is. Of course, events that I'm used to. <laughs> yes, it is interesting. And we, so since we buy a lot through the Growers Cooperative, um, you know, we're sort of one step removed from them. But we mm-hmm. did have um, a guy that we were buying cheese from for a while who would just kind of show up in the alley. I mean, we weren't even ordering it. He would just show up in the alley with like his wife and two daughters mm-hmm. who would just stand in the alley behind him. And he would knock on the on the back door of the shop and say, well, I have some cheese curd today. Would you like to buy it? Yeah. Like, yes, sure. We'd love to buy it. You know, it was just sort of a strange interaction. It was not what I was used yeah, to. Yeah. It is a step back in time. Yeah. I remember last um, fall, we were taking just hundreds of pounds of neck pumpkin because we were using it for our <laughs> roasted butternut squash dish. And um, it, he dropped it off. No boxes. Just like <laughs> hundreds, like 700 pounds of neck pumpkins in a, in a pile and I was like it would be super helpful if we could have containment because yes. I need to weigh all these things to make sure that the delivery matches the yeah. invoice and yes. he's looking at me like this is the most absurd request he's ever heard we get um we get our um Thanksgiving turkeys from mm-hmm. uh, from a Mennonite farmer, and it is similarly like they just. Come is it pecan meadows? Um, no, we get it from um, we get it through Earth and Eats, but uh-huh. I think it comes from a, a different farm. Uh, I can't yep. remember the name of the farm, yep, but yep, yep. Um, but yeah, they come and he just sort of dumps them on the floor <laughs> the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. And it is, and uh, you know, we only have a thousand square feet, right. so like fifty turkeys takes right. up kind of a lot of space. But I mean, it really is. You know, for for those of you who step into either each Peacher or Glens and hope it is the produce is being delivered by a Mennonite to the back door like that is in fact what is happening yes <laughs> um, this is like truly the, the stuff you hope it is um, but in terms of local food there's certainly a story to tell that stretches w- well beyond our area's farms over the last few years um, Emily you've really had a chance to deep dive into what's happening in locally made packaged products or as mm-hmm. we call them in the industry CPG mm-hmm. which stands for consumer packaged goods mm-hmm. can you tell us about one or two of your favorites maybe origin stories or like quirky little anecdotes yeah let me think about that one for a minute um well let's see try to think about an anecdote um you mean like cookies and things like that that uh, I don't know I mean for instance you know Glenn's one of our values is that we grow small businesses oh, yeah. along with our own a l- you know over six years we've launched 89 small local businesses so uh, we've had a lot of experiences where people who quit their day jobs to pursue their dream of starting a food business hear the word yes yeah for the first time yeah. in our building I know you have had yes, similar experiences absolutely. no it's it's been great I mean I I think um one of the fun things about um Starting each peach was when we first, someone actually just asked me this the other day. It was like, how do you find, how did you go about starting Mm -hmm. finding things? And, you know, at first I just, I really did pound the pavement. I mean, I went to every farmer's market in the entire area and talked to vendors and I said, oh, you're making like a really nice um, burrata or, you know, whatever. Would you, would you be willing to sell that? Or, um, you know, oh, we need some gluten-free cookies. Those look like gluten-free cookies. Can you send them my way? You (laughs) know? And then once you open they all come to you, mm-hmm. you know, and so, um, you know, and, and some some have not made it, but um, a lot have, and it's been really fun to watch everyone grow. Like one of our, we used, we, one of the first products we carried was that um, Goutte product, which yep. is like a um, a juice, a it's tonic, a tonic. A tonic. It's not really a juice, right? It was a tonic. Um, and at first, you know, she would just, you know, she herself would just come and drop off, you know. 
four or five, six, whatever she had in her mm-hmm. truck. Um, and they started selling like wildfire. Yep. They're very expensive, actually. So I was very surprised that these things were moving so well. But they're delicious and they're healthy. And they were flying off the shelf. And we just kept ordering more and ordering more. And pretty soon she went to an online platform. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon she went to distribution. And pretty soon she, you know, and now she's, you know, she has multiple distributors, actually. And she's all over the place. And I um, think she, 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 in fact, sold the business last and month. And she sold the business Yeah, we're last talking month, about Violin Orban. Yeah, the founder of Goutte Tonics, who sold her business last month to the vegetable butcher. I did not know yeah, that. That's for amazing. sure. Yeah. But yeah, it, it is a great product and beloved certainly. Yeah, and it's just it's just sort of great to see how, you know, how it grows. And um and I think um interacting with vendors um in terms of our good food collaborative. Why don't um, you share a little bit about that? Sure. So um Danielle and I are both members of something called the Good Food Merchants Collaborative, which is the sponsoring Body. It's a group of independent um, retailers nationwide that uh, supports small independent craft producers to make these really awesome CPG and other types of products locally. Um, it's nationwide. Um, they call we call those who are making the products the crafters. Um, and every year there's the Good Food Awards, which is sponsored by our merchants organization, um, and we pick the best you know, locally made salami and we pick the best honey and we pick the best confections and the best chocolate um, that are being locally produced. And it's been really fun to introduce the vendors that we work with to that organization. Like um, I know um, Tanya from Craft Kombucha, you know, she's been int- you know interested in submitting her product um, to, to be a possible mm-hmm. winner and she didn't know about that before us and I think it, it's been fun and you know sometimes they have to jump through some hoops actually to yeah. get on the list because those the requirements are quite stringent but it helps them improve their product and improve their sourcing practices yeah, as well for sure um, so I think that folks maybe are getting a little bit of a sense how different it is to shop at a grocery store than it is to shop for a grocery yeah. store, <laughs> the story that you told. Um, my experience was extremely similar. Yeah. Um, I walked the farmer's market, the independent grocery stores, even the chains, mm-hmm. to try to figure out you know, what makes a complete salsa category. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and uh, both of us opened our doors with pretty empty shelves. We it had like scary. a couple items and yeah. then both of us paid really close attention to what our neighbors wanted mm-hmm. and we built our product mix out accordingly. Absolutely. And now we both have these robust and interesting inventories um, of the very things that folks, folks are looking to buy. We've made it possible for people to do a complete shop in our mm-hmm. stores. When at yeah. the beginning, I think people had the assumption that our stores were sort of you know, cheese and charcuterie accompaniment shops. Exactly. S H O P P E. Yeah. And, and in fact, sometimes the same store. People be like, "Are you affiliated with Glenn?" Right. And I'd be like, "No, <laughs> just up the street." We just like each other we just a lot. Like each other. No. When we first, um, I mean, I I just laugh at that first inventory purchase I made. I mean, I literally bought everything I could think of to buy mm-hmm. to put on the shelf, and a lot of and it. There wasn't that much stuff. And it was it. We packed, unpacked every single box and put it on the shelf, and I was like. Oh my god! Oh my god! What am I gonna do? <laughs> There's nothing on the shelves. I had all of the spaghetti like horizontal. Yeah, on the shelf. <laughs> just one deep. I did the exact same thing. You know, in the original, um, in the original orders, you know, I wrote them all by hand to each vendor. Hello, can I have one case of blueberry mm-hmm. jam? Um, everything arrived, and I have a whole store to fill, and literally no food to put on the shelves. Yeah. I immediately sent back like double it, triple yeah, it. Like I know. <laughs> we got to open with something on it the is, shelves. It's amazing. Yeah, it. it 
you can pack a lot of stuff in a yeah. very small store. So um, only I think only now in kind of year five, year six of the store are we are we really maxing out our capacity. Yeah. And we have added a lot of things. And sure. we just keep building more shelves, right? Yeah, exactly. At, at Finding we, more places. We have an expression SMS. It stands for sell more shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> find a word, find somewhere to so put find it. Find somewhere to put, put it. Someone will buy it. Um, so, all right. So we've got lots of good stories about what's yeah. happening in small batch food. But what do you think is the greatest impediment facing small batch food makers in the D.C. area? And who do you think has done the best job overcoming those impediments to really flourish? Mm. Well, um, I mean, I think, you know, um, one of the impediments is just, you know, how much space we have. I mean, we've just been talking about how um, to fill it. And um, I think that shoppers are also getting so much more used to um, unbelievable convenience, you know, sort of the Amazon era of, you know, just I think it, I click it, it arrives at my door a day later. And so being able to keep up with that level of convenience, I think is is very difficult. Um, so I think we are, I mean, that's really one of our strategies for this year is try to expand our convenience offering um, mm-hmm. and try to, you know, try to meet that demand, but on a local level, you know, whether it means pre-preparing, um, you know, pre-marinating chicken breasts that can mm-hmm. go straight in the oven or having more frozen foods, but that are locally made, like sure. frozen pizzas that can be locally made. Got and, a serious ice cream um, game in this part of the world. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Lots of ice cream. Um, so I think that that's a, that's a big one for us. Um, as far as the local produce, like challenges for the local producers, I do think it's, um, I think it's scale, you know, sort of just being able to meet demand and grow their businesses as, as quickly as they can when, when they do take off. Mm-hmm. So when they get the yes and when they start to be in multiple stores, like how can they keep up without losing um, the integrity of their product, the quality of their product? Because I think that we've seen that happen um, where, you know, someone gets really big and then all of a sudden their product starts to fall apart mm-hmm. a little bit because they can't control it. So being ready to take on that next step, I think, um, is really important. Um, but I think, um, you know, there's been a lot of, um, I'm trying to think of a good example of someone who's grown really well. I mean, I think, I mean, not to go back to Goutte, but she did, she did a great job. She did a great job. Managing that growth process. I actually think um, Little Wild Thing, so I think was on, on your show. They won our Accelerate Her competition last um, year. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, they're, in a, they're doing a really hard thing, right? I mean, they're growing microgreens. And I see them everywhere. Mm-hmm. I think that that's amazing. And I, I don't know how they're doing it, to be honest, but I think they're doing it really well. And they're speed racks. Yeah. Lots of speed <laughs> Lots racks. Of speed they're growing inside. But they're, and speed racks. you know, their quality is consistent. Their delivery is consistent. They have kept up their levels of customer service with us. Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, I think they're doing a really good job. But I think that that is, that is a struggle for sure. Yeah, certainly. When and, when and how do you scale? Because it's expensive to scale and you have to be ready to do it. So that's an interesting point that causes is quite a bit of debate in our in our buying team, which is if our foundational one of our foundational values is we grow small businesses along with our own, and we've been the first yes for these producers, mm-hmm. and then they achieve that moment where scaling is required, mm-hmm. and perhaps they move to co-packing. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens if that co-packer is in Vermont or Massachusetts, mm-hmm. which is outside the states of the Chesapeake Bay watershed? We, we've set up a little bit of a paradox, yeah. Because now we've got to bring in a non-local product 
but we also don't want to penalize them for having succeeded at the thing we've been trying right. to get them to do. Right. You know, what do you guys think about that? I don't know. I mean, I think, um, well, we should have more local co-packers. Yeah, I guess. certainly. <laughs> we certainly. could use one. Um, I think um, for us, you know, we are a little less... Um, focused on the on the local piece yeah. i mean we definitely support local um, but we also have stuff in our store from all over so i think for us i think helping that uh vendor grow would overshadow it coming from vermont or new york mm-hmm. um but i think honestly i think the be- the most important thing is transparency and i think as long as that story is told um, of why that product is coming mm-hmm. from further afield um and what the impact is i think I think I could make peace with it. <laughs> yeah, actually, we, we have also. We have we always have to have the conversation, but it, it never resolves against the vendor because yeah. we're so proud of them yeah. for having reached that moment that we want to continue to yeah. support and grow the relationship. So we're talking with Emily Friedberg, co-founder of Each Peach Market, about the technicalities of getting sustainably made small batch food onto the shelves of grocery stores in our regions. Region. We're going to take a short break, and when we get back, we'll get her thoughts on food trends to look out for, and we'll also get some tips on finding the very best of what's around. Back in a sec. The track you're listening to during the break is by artist Keto. That is K-I-E-D-O. If you're tuned in, this is Full Service Radio. This is Everyday Enviro, a show about the small things you can do to reduce your personal carbon footprint. I'm Danielle Vogel, founder of Glens Garden Market, and I'm joined today by brilliant local grocer Emily Friedberg of Each Peach Market. We've been talking about um, small batch food, some of our favorite origin stories, what it's like to build a grocery store that is shoppable, and now we're going to give you some tips about how you can find the best stuff being produced around here. So. Emily, you've been working in the local food movement for a good long while now, just a, about as long as, as mm-hmm. I have. Our, our stores are about the same age. So what trends or products are you seeing these days that really excite you? Um, well, um, I think um, what so one thing that really excites me is how um, much more involved our customer base is in what they're getting and how they're buying it. Um, you know, when we first started, I, you know, it was definitely starting. People would come in and sort of, you know, demand to know if this product was organic or not organic. But now it's going a lot deeper than that, I think. And they want to know um, not only is it organic or not, but how was it produced? You know, they are interested in things like the environmental footprint of the product. Of um, They're kind of more educated about things like um you know, almond milk versus oat milk and stuff like that. So that's one product that has really taken off for us um, in the last few months, actually. Did you, um, do you have Oatly? Um, we had Oatly. <gasps> then we couldn't get it back again because it was in such demand worldwide that they were out of stock all the time. Mm-hmm. Now we carry something called Minor Figures, which is actually from the UK, I believe. Um, 
but it's flying off the shelf. So I, it's just a just sort of an anecdote for how much more in-depth people are going into their food choices and how I think people are really getting a little bit more adventurous, too, in um, some of the things that they're willing to try mm-hmm. as far as produce is concerned and things like that. Um, they are also um, something that this has not really that much to do with food, but... Um, because we have a cafe that's next door and we've been experimenting with some little pop-up retail uh, shops there Um, and we just did a plant pop-up for uh, the month of May and it's been kind of amazing how interested people are in plants succulents all the rage so hip so now but we've also been selling vegetable starts from our um, organic um, producers and I think it's just it's kind of interesting because I think it's all a part of sort of a little bit more DIY, getting getting back into um, understanding how things grow, yeah, and very how cool. things are made. So cool. um, I'm excited about that. Um, I'd like to try seeds again. That was kind of a failure for us. But um, <laughs> so Sam has a seed bomb machine outside of his grocery really? store in San Francisco. Yeah, it's like an old school gumball machine and so you and you put money in it yeah and, seeds come and out? out comes a seed bomb oh, it's no. so it's a seed bomb so it's a little ball of dirt with yeah. seeds embedded yeah. and you plant the ball oh and like God. hilarity ensues like like wildflowers and things like that yeah vegetables yeah. so cool I love um it. okay so we've got some trade shows coming up though yeah. it's that season where we're going to new york yeah. for fancy food and mercantile what are you going to be looking for categorically yeah so we are so we are always um you know, we, we always are willing to add unique and interesting products. So um, we when we were just in L.A., we added um, some pretty interesting products like halva, which um, awesome. we hadn't had on our shelves before. So really, we're looking to add things we don't have. So halva was one of them. We picked up some um, some of these sort of guava paste kind of products from uh, Hawaii, actually. And those are really interesting. Is it um, a confection? It is more like um, an additive to, like membrio, like for a sandwich or a cheese plate. Or Delicious. But they come in passion fruit and guava and I forget the other flavor, star fruit or something, some very tropical fruit. Um, and so just looking for things that we don't currently carry. Um, I'm kind of intrigued by the um, CBD Okay. All right. And you getting in, in on in that food? I, I'm not sure yet. I'm kind of on the fence. I'm taking a hard pass um, on I, CBD. <laughs> not doing it. I'm just kind of interested in its um, it, sort of it being an additive to food uh, in particular. Yeah, like, there's I don't, CBD drinks and stuff. Yeah, I don't think that we would ever. So we've been very, very strict about no personal care products mm-hmm. in our store. So we do only food. So. Um, you know, we don't, we will never sell cat food. We will never sell toilet paper. We will never sell, um, yeah, shampoo. The, or, in you know, in the industry, this is called the Haba section, yes. the health and yes. beauty aids. I mean, maybe I'd sell lip balm, but I haven't done that yet. <laughs> okay. Um, but you know, so, so we're pretty strict about that. So, but the, so the CBD thing is kind of like half, half, right. Cause it's, it's sort of something that people would take as a supplement for their joints mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, but the fact that when we were out in LA, I mean, it was, everywhere Mm -hmm. and um and in honey and in fancy salt and chocolate drinks and chocolate and tea and all of these things and i'm just kind of interested in it i don't know um you know i don't know if we're gonna get into it in a a major way but i am definitely intrigued and uh, i'd like to know if it works i don't know even that so um there's certainly a market for it. Yeah, I think um, other people are interested too. So I feel like um, it's worth exploring. And I don't know, I feel like there would have to be a few niche products. So mm-hmm. I would kind of be on the lookout for something that would 
stand out in our store and not just kind of blend in with the rest of the chocolate, for example, you know. I don't know either way, but I would be interested to see whether or not we see CBD showing at New York. I, I think that will be. You yeah. don't think so? All right, stay tuned. All right. You we'll won't find you know. it at Glens Garden Market, but we're going to send you <laughs> up the street to each peach. Um, okay, so Emily, as you know, this, uh, this show is all about the little things folks can do to minimize their personal carbon footprint. And you actually make a living empowering people to reduce their carbon footprint by eating locally made food. Mm-hmm. Can you give us one or two pro tips for making environmental progress in our daily lives? Maybe things you incorporate or mm-hmm. aspire to incorporate? Yes. I mean... Absolutely. I mean, I think we, I asked my staff actually before I came here if I, if they saw any trends in our shoppers of things people were asking for, things that they were doing. Um, and certainly, you know, lots of our customers bring their own bags. Um, so that's one really simple way to, yep. we've actually going to get rid of paper bags entirely as a woot largely inspired by Danielle. Um, they're coming and I rented a storage unit. Thanks to Danielle. That's good for you. <laughs> That's awesome. So, Way to go. Um, yeah. So collaboration right here. Um, so, um, so that was one thing, you know, also interest in composting. So mm-hmm. we, um, we compost a lot at each peach and I don't think we probably do a good enough job of telling our public how much we compost, but I mean, we compost everything from our kitchen everything at the cafe, all the coffee grounds. Um, and we work with Compost Cab, which is mm-hmm. also a local Mount Pleasant business, so, um, which is really awesome. And they do personal composting as well. So we're actually going to run a summer promo with them where you get um, 50% off you know, if you use an each peach code for your first month um, working with compost for personal compost collection. So Smart. I think that... Um, I think that there's a lot of interest in that, but people don't really know how to do it. So the idea that someone would just come and take it away for them, I think is great. And I think that's a small thing we can do. Um, I think, you know, the biggest impact is trying to consume less meat, Mm -hmm. of course. Um, We get a lot of interest in, a lot more interest in vegetarian and vegan options. Um, I am... I, have, I am not a vegetarian, and that would be very hard for my family to do, but we do try to pick certain like certain days, like one day a week where we don't eat meat. So um, meat, we call it Meatless Mondays. It's awesome. Um, Progress one bite at a time. So I think that that is a great, like super easy little thing just to take, pick one day where you don't eat meat is very low, um, you know, low adversity to your family and potentially high impact um, mm-hmm. sort of in the aggregate. So I think that's a big thing. Um, and then, you know, just being careful of your own, um, packaging use and your own waste. Um, so making sure you're not buying more than you need or have a plan for using the leftovers or processing things at home, making sure you freeze things. If you're not going to use it, we, we freeze a ton of things in my family and at the store, um, where, you know, we make something freeze it even partially finished and then you know you can defrost it and finish it later for for whatever reason um but just i mean that's one of the beauties of of each peach is that like you really can just shop one day at a time Mm -hmm. and so you don't need to buy 16 shopping bags worth of stuff for a week and then that's really hard to measure how much uh, of that you're actually going to use and so if you're just shopping every day for what you're going to consume that day you, you have a lot less waste um and then I think the plastics, I mean, the plastic packaging is really difficult for me because um, we don't really have a bulk section in our store. We just don't have the space for it. But 
I really hate excess packaging. And Certainly. So, Especially um, when it comes to single-use plastics. Yes. And so, you know, really trying to do as much as we can. We're actually about to embark on a full store packaging inventory to really see how we can improve it um, Very good. in terms of you know, we, we already use compostables and reusables, but trying to do even better, you know, even going like we do these big platters and they come with a plastic lid and mm-hmm. it's like, there's no reason it needs to have a plastic lid. So what else can we use? Um, can you let me know when you get that answer? Yes. I'd love to explore options. Yeah. Cause I, that thing is, and we have, have had customers. So what we do right now, which is, which is not that, um, helpful, but <laughs> we do, we just offer to take it back. So we deliver the thing take the lids, say, do you want us to take the lids back? And we take the lids back and we reuse them. Smart. So, you know, it's making them a little bit multi-use. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have had customers that are really interested in that too. So I think it goes hand in hand with the individual, what the individual can do. And then if they're asking for it, we're going to deliver as the business owner for sure. Very good. So I would be remiss if I did not ask the question I get asked most frequently because I don't usually have grocers on the show. <laughs> um, the fact that you went to business school and your partner went to culinary school certainly helped this journey that we are on together. Um, but if you had a piece of advice for somebody looking to start an independent mm-hmm. specialty grocery store, other than don't do it, which is my <laughs> first piece of advice, what would you tell that person? Uh, um, well, I think personally, I honestly think having a business partner has been like unbelievable for me and that we have such I don't think we even realized how important that would be when we first started we just were friends who were like let's start a business together but then it turned out that we have really complementary skills and we add value to really different parts of the business and we work really well together and you know when I, and cuz it's a roller coaster and you know, when you're down, you need somebody else to mm-hmm. be up. And when you're up, somebody else can be down. Certainly. And so I think we really help each other out that way. And so for in that sense, I think having a business partner is really great. Um, and then I think, you know, the biggest thing that we did, I think that helped us be successful was the amount of networking that we did and just seeking assistance from everyone else. And I think this community, the grocer community, um, has been extremely open and collaborative. And I'm for that, I'm really grateful. And um, I was on a panel last week where um, with someone from the, uh, the distillery um, business, and she was saying that, you know, you can't just roll up to another distillery <laughs> and ask them for their business secrets. And I was like, oh, that's funny. You can do that in grocery, actually. <laughs> and mostly they'll give them to you very forthcoming, as long as you're not like, you know, three blocks away. They'll right. do it to you. You know, so uh, that has been something that I didn't foresee as being kind of a r- real um, ingredient for success is just being able to learn from other people. Yeah, certainly. I've really enjoyed our work together and yeah. collaborative. It's been invaluable. Because owning a business is sort of lonely work, to be honest. And to be able to meet with people that are sort of solving the same problems simultaneously and who are really open and authentic about our desire to help each other and build each other up, it's... It's not only empowering, it's like life-saving, yeah. frankly. I mean, even just to commiserate, even if there's no solution, yeah. it's helpful. Certainly. <laughs> um, so thank you, Emily. Thank you so much for being thank here you. today. Thank you so much um, for having me. Yeah, I'm really grateful for your tireless work at the <laughs> forefront of the good food movement. Um, it's so awesome to have an ally in this quest to make delicious, sustainably made local food more available to our neighborhoods. So thank you. Keep it up. Um, 
All right, so before we end our time together, let's take a moment to reflect on why climate change is a problem worth even attempting to address at the personal level. It's huge and complex, and at times it seems well beyond our control. But it's not. This is your moment of motivation coming at you from my friends at NOAA. All right, guys, this one, this is, this is detailed, dense, but critically important. So since the start of the Industrial Revolution, the pH of the ocean's surface waters has dropped from 8.21 to 8.10. This drop in pH is called ocean acidification. A drop of 0.1 may not seem like a lot, but the pH scale is logarithmic. So a one unit drop in pH means a tenfold increase in acidity. So a change of 0.1 means a roughly 30% increase in acidity in the oceans. And increasing acidity interferes with the ability of marine life to extract calcium from the water to build their shells and skeletons. Based on air bubbles trapped in mile-thick ice cores and other paleoclimate evidence, we know that during the ice age cycles of the past million years or so, CO2 has never exceeded 300 parts per million. Before the Industrial Revolution started in the mid-1700s, the global average amount of CO2 was about 280 parts per million, or ppm. By the time continuous observations began at Mauna Loa Volcanic Observatory in 1958, global atmospheric carbon dioxide was already 315 parts per million. And on May 9th of 2013, the daily average carbon dioxide measured there surpassed 400 parts per million for the first time on record. Less than two years later, in 2015, the global amount went over 400 for the first time. Climate change is real. It's happening right now, and human activity is making it worse. Every little bit counts. Please keep finding little ways to minimize your personal carbon footprint. It really matters, and it's urgently necessary. And thanks, Emily, for giving us some good tips on how to do that. Um, and thank you for listening to Everyday Enviro on Full Service Radio. If you have an idea for a show or a guest, or you have a question about how you can reduce your personal carbon footprint, hit me up by email. I'm at glensmarket at gmail.com. And in any event, we'll catch you next week on Everyday Enviro. Talk then. Bye, friends. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at Full Service RDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.